All right, turn with me to James chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 26. And the title of the study is Real Faith is Seen in Real Works. In chapter 1, uh, verse 27, um, James said, take care of the widows and the orphans. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he warns them and exhorts them to not show partiality. And he gives the illustration of a poor man who's told to go to the back of the building while the rich guy gets the upfront uh, favored uh, seat and the rich and the poor man is uh, treated poorly. So very much in his mind is a discussion about the, those that are needy, those that need to be shown love and kindness. As we come into verses 14 through 26, he's going to talk about what real faith is, okay? Now, he already talked about this, right, um, in verse 27, what real religion is, what pure and undefiled religion is. It's helping. It's taking care of the widow and the orphan. So I think that we should be having this same kind of backdrop in our mind is that we're looking out for the needy. We're looking out for those that are in a desperate situation. I don't think it should be the only way in which we would seek to apply what real faith is, but it certainly is the context that we have been reading in. Now, this book um, was not a favorite of the reformer Martin Luther. He actually called it an epistle of straw. And part of the reason why is for the section that we're going to cover today, and then a similar portion is going to come up again. But he looked at this and he, he understood or he thought that James was maybe talking about how you had to um, earn your salvation. And that's not what he's talking about. I can understand because of the world he was living in while he was hypersensitive to the word works. But I really believe that this brother would have just faithfully dug a little bit more and not allowed the word works to only be understood in one way. He would have come to a, a right interpretation of this passage. And um, I think we'll, we'll demonstrate today that um, there's plenty of places in the Bible where it tells us that we are saved by faith alone in Christ, but that that's for the, the, the moment of salvation, but that there is always going to be real works that are going to follow real faith. So um, we'll, we'll pick that apart a little bit, but let's begin in verse 14. <clears throat> And read where he talks about useless faith. He asks questions about this. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Second question, can faith save him? Well, clearly he's using the word faith in a different way than which we are used to using it. He's addressing a problem that was known to them, was very familiar to them. Um, when Paul writes about how we are saved through faith alone and not by works, lest anyone should boast. He's correcting a different problem. So both Paul and James are coming at this question of faith and works, but they're coming at it from deficiencies that are on the opposite side. And I think that alone helps us to begin to work through it. You know, here's a question that I love to ask myself when I come to a difficult passage. Not only what is this passage saying, but what is this passage, what? Not saying. That, that is a, such a great tool for Bible study because when you ask that question, you can begin to allow the rest of Scripture to come into your thinking that will help you to, to frame it up and really understand it. So he asks this question and he says, 
You know, what is the profit of it? And can it save you? So again, a deficient faith, not a saving faith. And, and the answer is, um, it's not profitable. And no, it can't save you. The, that's the answer. But um, we want to understand, and William McDonald puts it this way, what James is emphasizing is that we are not saved by a faith of words only, but that kind of faith which results, keyword, results in a life of good works. This group was saying it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter if your life is transformed. It doesn't matter if you are following the Lord and um, and obeying his commandments and loving the widow and loving the orphan and taking care of the poor guy. It doesn't matter how you live. All that matters is that you believe. And if you say you believe in Jesus, you're good to go. Um, Don't be bothered. So this is the issue that he is correcting. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, and he's going to give a practical application that gives the answer uh, to that question in verse 14. Those two questions in verse 14. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed, be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for their body, what does it profit? So he says, what's the profit of faith that doesn't have works? And now he's going to zero in. He says, all right, the guy that's hungry and has no way to provide for himself, when you walk away from him and you say, enjoy your meal tonight, but you know they have nothing to eat, what value does your greeting have? It's not, it's not even neutral. It has no benefit, but it's not neutral. It's completely negative. It's going to be offensive to that person. And so um, he's talking about love without actions. This is useless. And so nobody wants to encounter this type of Christian. The only people that want to encounter this type of Christians are the people that are living just like it because their lives justify their immorality. And it justifies their disobedience. But no person wants to meet a hypocritical religious person. That's no fun. That's not a pleasant experience. Now, what James is saying here is so similar to what John says. I imagine many of you have this ringing in your ears right now what John says. 1 John 3, 16 and 17. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. So Jesus, he had a practical uh, love that he showed and he went to the cross. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods... You have the means to provide the meal. And sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? That person's saved? Are you sure? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So James and John are talking about the same issue. Is that real faith is going to be expressed by real Christian living. Can you claim to have real faith in God when you allow those that God has brought into your life suffer need and you have the means to help and to alleviate? Now listen, if you have people that come across your path, it is um, expected of God that you would uh, take care of them, especially inside the household of faith. Verse 17 Um, So he raises a question in verse 14. Verses 15 and 16, he gives an illustration that gives you the answer. The useless uh, greeting is the same as a uh, 
Faith without works. It's useless. But then he just comes out with it and states it clearly. Verse 17. And he says, you know, faith without works, it's, it's lifeless. Thus also faith by itself does not have, if it does not have works, is dead. There's no life. There's no transformation. There's no born again experience. There is no hope of eternal life in the person who does not have the works that are evidence of a transformed life. It's useless to have faith but not have a changed life. That is a useless faith. That's not saving faith, though. That's not biblical faith. That's a false teaching faith. That's a a heretical faith. And we need to be on guard against this. Just to explore a little further into what James is not saying, um, let's contrast what Paul said with what James is saying, but we'll we'll reference the, the teaching of Jesus Um, and see that even Jesus taught what James was having to say. So Paul, when he was writing, solving this issue where people were saying that, you know what, you can earn your salvation, you can work hard, and if you work hard enough and you do um, enough good works, then the Lord will forgive you. It really wasn't even necessary that Jesus went to the cross. It's your good works. It's keeping the dietary law. It's keeping, you know, circumcision. This is what matters. And so he writes, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, biblical faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The works here and the faith here, right, they're different. This is a biblical faith, and these works are, that he talks about, he says, not of works. Those are works that would try to earn salvation. It's the same word, but you got to understand the context and that they're being used differently. And that's what throws us off. I think that's what, you know, stumbled, uh, you know, Martin Luther. Uh, Romans chapter four, verses one through four, same problem. What shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, So using the word differently than James did, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, works to get saved, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So Paul dealt with that side of the problem. James is dealing with the easy believism side that says, do whatever you want. But so this is how Paul dealt with it. James is dealing with a a different issue. But what James is saying is not new to Scripture. This is, I mean, you can find places in the Old Testament. But let's turn to Matthew, and you're going to have to turn there because there's too many verses to put up on the screen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 27. And you will see that what James is emphasizing is what Jesus taught in his earthly ministry. So we begin at verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits, by the things they do. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree 
bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you're going to know these false prophets, these people that are coming in trying to destroy the church. You're going to know them because of their evil works. Their evil works tell you that they are up to no good. Verse 20, therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. By their works, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, that ought to cause us all to look closely at what he has to say here. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we been super religious? We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons. We did many wonders in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness, you are religious and you use my name, but your life has not been transformed. You're still walking in a godless life. You're still walking in sin. Therefore, verse 24, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, no works, right, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And you know, you think about the fall, it's a fall of those, this brings us right back to those people that were saying, on, on judgment day, Lord, but Lord, Lord. He's like, no. And their entire house, their life will crumble, and great is that fall, as they are dismissed from the presence of God. Because they had a faulty understanding of what Christianity is. Jesus is not impressed with empty religious claims. Jesus is not impressed with the person who says, Lord, Lord, and yet he's saying, but I do what I want. And she's saying, I do what I want. He's not impressed by that. Man can get impressed by that. I hope we're not impressed by that. He expects and commands that we live obedient, fruitful lives. Jesus demands and commands holiness from me. And he commands and demands it from you. Well, does it really matter how I live? I mean, if I put my faith and trust in Jesus, well, let me ask you this question. Is it helpful when you tell a hungry person to have a good meal and they walk away hungry? This, is, is, is it good to have this kind of faith? No, he says it's a dead faith. That is not faith at all. Not a saving faith. It's a corrupt faith. Jesus taught in John 15 that if we abide in him, we would bear much fruit. You cannot be connected in a relationship with Jesus Christ and not be changed. That can't happen. The Lord will transform and change you once you begin to enter into a relationship with him, the spirit of God. Galatians chapter 5 says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, right? All of these things. Put it like this. Once you get saved, you can't help but change. I remember when I was in Australia, we lived in mission, as missionary in Australia for a few years. And um, I, I used to play the guitar. I actually was the first worship leader here. 
until we had more gifted people. Praise the Lord for that. You can thank Jesus for that. I never started to play to lead. I only play, I want to learn how to play the guitar so I can have my own worship in my quiet times, which I did. But then as soon as everybody found out, then they wanted me to, and listen, I'm not, this is not false humility. Ask Jason, he'll tell you. Um, yeah, I, I could do it, but it wasn't pretty. And um, so um, there's this guy who had recently got saved. He was an old rocker dude, and he had a guitar shop. And um, he said, he goes, hey, I'll tell you what. You come down here, and you teach a Bible study, and I'll teach you guitar. That's awesome. I went down there and got to know him, and we were, he did that. Um, hopefully, I did a better job of teaching him about the Bible than he did of teaching me about the guitar. But, uh, you know, his name was uh, Graham Ford, actually. I'll never forget him. And um, we were at a retreat together, and um, we sat down after the Bible study, and we're eating lunch together. And this guy goes, he goes, man, that was a bleeping, bleeping good Bible study, wasn't it, mate? And I said, it was. It was a good Bible study, yeah, it was. And he goes, ah, I probably shouldn't be cussing anymore, huh? And I said, well, I mean, how, do you, how, how does it make you feel? He goes, well, it doesn't feel right. I said, yeah, you probably shouldn't. I mean, you know, this is what happens, right? You, you begin to be changed. You get convicted of your attitudes, you know, you don't need anybody telling you how to drive. The Holy Spirit saying, you need to get control of yourself. You need to get control of your life because the Spirit of God is working and changing and moving in your life because you are truly saved. Now, if you say, well, I'm saved, but boy, I don't feel any of that conviction in my life. My life looks as the same today as the day I got saved. Matter of fact, I don't even look as good. Then you're not saved. You're not saved. Well, okay, maybe I'm backslidden. Maybe you are. Maybe you are backslidden, but a life that has come into contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ will be a life that experiences the power of God. Can a believer, really, a person, really experience the power of Almighty God in their life and be no different? The Bible says no. You will be changed. You will be transformed. Now, in verses 18 through 25, he's going to give some examples um, from Scripture. He's going to talk about demons. He's going to talk about Abraham. And he's going to talk about Rahab. Uh, One of these is going to be an example that's negative and shows that, you know, from the demons. And then there'll be two positive examples. But let's begin at verse 18. And we'll see that faith is seen through our works. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. The objection seems to come from someone who suggests that some people are big on the faith department and others are big on the works department. And James challenges this person to show that they have real legitimate saving faith um, without pointing to fruit. Or work. How, how can you say that you have real faith if you can't point to something in your life? In verses 19 and 20, he gives the first um, example of three. He says, you believe there's one God? Congratulations. So do the demons. I mean, it's meant to shock them. They have correct theology. They are monotheistic, okay? They know there is one God. They probably have a correct theology about the Trinity, too. 
But does this mean they're saved? Because they believe? Is their belief the same as the belief of Abraham we're going to talk about? Oh, no, it's very different. Same word used in two different ways, right? So he says, listen, even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So again, it provides no change. If salvation came through a simple acknowledgement of Jesus, then demons are going to be in heaven. Demons are not going to be in heaven. They'll be judged, and they will not be in the presence of the Lord. Does anybody want to take up the case and try and prove that demons do good works? You're going to have a really difficult time doing that. So they would clearly reject the idea that a demon is saved simply because they have a correct belief in a monotheistic God. And he says, well, then maybe people have a correct belief in the Lord and they're not saved either. You can see where he is going with that point. And then in verses 21 through 25, he begins to talk about the next two. And how Abraham was a man of faith and, and also a man of works. Now we begin in verse 21 and it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Again, it's a different, it's the same word works, but it's being used differently. And so he, he brings us to Genesis 22. When Abraham makes it to Mount Moriah in obedience to the Lord, he's about to offer his son Isaac. And the Lord says, stop, don't do it. Nobody would have questioned whether or not Abraham had real faith. Oh, Abraham, you keep saying that you have faith, but where's the evidence of it? Well, do you remember that account? When I took my son, that was me being obedient to the Lord. So the works were there. Um, And so we see that. Now in verse 22, we see that faith and works work together. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or was made complete. So in verse 22, you have these two inseparable elements of genuine salvation, salvation, faith and works. They go together. If you try to say that they don't go together, then you don't have biblical saving faith. In verses 23 and 24, he, he goes back in time, actually. So in verse 21, he's looking at that moment when Isaac is a, a, a young man and he takes him to crucify, uh, to uh, kill him on the altar, but doesn't because the Lord said, I'll provide myself a sacrifice. But we see the faith of willing to do what the Lord tells him. Now in verses 23 and 24, he goes back in time and he's not looking at his works now, but now he's going to look at when he had faith, which is interesting because the faith comes before what? The works. So we see in verse 23, scripture uh, was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. And you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So the second event mentioned by James in verse 23 is about 30 years before it's in chapter 15, Genesis 15, 6, where God believes that, uh, where Abraham believes that God is going to give him a child. He believes him, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But then we see the works of him some 30 years later, which is not to suggest that it's the only work, but it's the prominent one in Scripture. 
So this is what he's trying to say. And then he comes to the next positive example. And some of us say, well, yeah, well, you're choosing Abraham. I mean, Abraham's like, who's like Abraham? All right, well, let's talk about Rahab. Let's talk about Rahab the, the harlot. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And again, we read this and we struggle over the language. It's like, well, wait a minute. That's what the Bible teaches. Well, you got to have the right definition of the word works, right? And, and, and understanding, even the word justified. Think of it this way. Here's the story of Rahab. She is living in Jericho on the wall. The Israelites are coming into the promised land. God is giving it to them. And the spies of the land are found out and the uh, authorities are looking for them. They're hiding in Rahab's house. And um, this is what we read there in Joshua 2, 9 through 11. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord, that Yahweh has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. For when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, <coughs> Sion and Og, those are the two kings, you utterly destroyed them. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. And here it is. Look at this. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She made a profession. And then they said, well, you hide us and no harm will come to you. And now her works are seen. She believes that they're the ones who are following the true and living God and that they are going to be defeated by that invading army. And then they say, well, prove your faith. And she hides them. Think about it this way. When you go back as those two spies and you're reporting to Joshua, hey, when we attack the city, we have to make certain that we don't harm this one house. Why? Because she's a believer. How do you know she's a believer? Oh, because she hid us. Now, hiding them did not save her. It's that confession she makes in verse 11. That is a confession of faith and belief. But how do you know that it's real? Because she put her own life in jeopardy and committed treason, if you will, against her country, and she hid them. Which it is interesting, those... I don't want to get to that point, but it's just... The, it'll take me a while to unpack it, and I don't want to do that. But So we see a negative example. The demons, they believe, but they're not saved. But then we see two... Uh, other people, Rahab and Abraham, and you see their manifested works, but they also had belief. So demons believe and don't have works, but saints believe and have works. And then there in verse 26, we see that life, humanly speaking, requires a body and spirit. For as the body without the spirit is dead... So faith without works is also dead. So he gives another illustration. You know, how do we know when somebody dies? It's when the spirit of a man or woman separates from the body, we say they have died. And there is no more life. And he says, well, if works is separated from faith, then that faith is dead. It's not real saving faith. So it is both of these Faith in the Lord, genuine faith in the Lord is going to produce 
a real change of life. James has declared under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that genuine salvation is both belief and works. Belief coming first, resulting in salvation. We know this from the rest of Scripture. And then good works will follow. Saving faith is more than an acknowledgement of the existence of God. Or that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. The demons can say those things. A lot of people can say those things, but it doesn't mean they are saved. Salvation belongs to those who have faith and whose faith has been made manifest through a changed life. This shouldn't be complicated for us. But many people, according to Jesus, take confidence in their dead religious faith. Not a few, not some, not here and there, not rarely, many, many who are going to say this. And this is on judgment day. And the result will be, Jesus says, I don't know you, depart from me, you are not welcome into heaven. This is what he's saying, salvation is not yours. Many people claim to have a relationship with Christ, but if they've not seen, come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, when they got saved, when they made the profession, they did not surrender themselves to the indwelling of the Spirit and to the work of the Spirit. John clearly warns us against belief without transformation. I'll read it again uh, from 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. It says, now by this we know him, if we keep his commandments. I'm saved, then you keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a, what does it say? A liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected, completed in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Well, how did Jesus walk? Jesus said, I always do the things that the Father tells me to do. Jesus walked in submission to the Father. Every believer will walk in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this message is going to have a couple of impacts. One impact that I want to talk about for just a moment is this. Some of you have true, genuine, saving faith. And yet there are things in your life that are not right right now. And you know it. And you've been repenting of it. You've been dealing with it. You've been getting prayer for it. You're ashamed of it. You feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon you. James is not talking to you. There's other passages we could turn to where James would address and he would tell us, you know, other places in the New Testament that would tell us how to walk, how to abide in the Lord. So there are those who may hear this message and think, well, man, I sinned last week. I'm not even saved. No, that's, that's not the case. Let me ask this question. Let me ask you to raise your hands. How many of you have had to repent of some sin in the last month? Raise your hand. Okay. So, wow, I didn't realize I was such a sinful church. But it's good to know. Um, I'm raising my hand first, though. So, listen, we all are in this work of being made perfect in the Lord. We are not a finished product. But this is how you can tell the difference. 
when you sinned, did it feel good? Not did it sound good? Did it sound good for 15 seconds after you did it? But like five minutes after the event was over, the outburst of wrath, the materialistic, the lustful thing, did you feel good? Oh, you didn't feel good. You felt miserable. You felt terrible. You felt convicted. And you're like, Lord, how can I do this? And, and so you repented. James is not talking to you. Who's James talking to? James is talking to the person who says, I can live however I want to. Don't judge me. Well, wait a minute. Jesus tells us to judge you. He said that we'd know you by your fruits. So we need to look at each other's life to really know. So it's a person when you're confronted and you say, listen, this, this drunkenness, these outbursts of wrath, this, this adultery, this fornication, this is not right. You need to repent of it. And the response is, I can do whatever I want to. I have God's gracious. I can do what I want. That's the person James is talking to. And I hope that we can see the distinction between the two. There are many people that are out there saying, standing in front of the churches, and they are saying that God's grace covers all of our sin. Therefore, go live however you want to. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says this, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the word says, God forbid. Like, no way. That should never happen. So, but there's a lot of people that are saying this, just like there was even in the first century church. This false teaching crept in at the beginning of the church. Jesus addressed it when he was still in ministry. He saw it among the nation of Israel, and he anticipated that there would be this same kind of idea. Those that are out there that are saying, you can live however you want to, morally, sexually, it does not matter. Choose whatever identification you want. They are false prophets. They are the ravenous wolves that are dressed in you know, lamb's uh, wool and trying to t pretend like they are for us, but they are against the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have been made good to feel... Uh, made to feel good about your sin and that you don't need to change that. Let me tell you, hear it from the word of God yourself. You must change. Otherwise, you will not inherit eternal life. It's dead. There's no life in it. We want eternal life. So we come and we put genuine faith in Jesus. His spirit indwells us and we go through a transformation process. And most of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But maybe there's some that are believers in here you had biblical faith. You had a transformation, and now there's a sin in front of you. And everybody's saying, hey, God wants you to be happy. You know, I, I agree that God wants you to be happy. But if God wants you to be happy and not holy, that is a lie. And this is, this is the preeminent thing is not your happiness. It's your holiness. Because without holiness, no one will see God. So we need to submit. I want to close by asking this question. Is it enough to say, I've put my faith in Jesus, I believe in him, or is a real question, does Jesus believe in me? Now that may sound odd to some of you, 
But you're going to see in just a moment, as we read from Scripture, it shouldn't sound odd. So we're always saying, well, I believe in him, I believe in him, I believe in him. But the question is, does he believe in your faith? Does he believe in my faith? Um, the word pisteo is the word for believe or faith in Scripture. It's also the word for commit. So the same Greek word can be translated believe or um, faith, or it can be translated commit. Let me read to you John 2, 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, Jesus, during the feast, many believed in him and his name when they saw <coughs> the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew that these were following him just because he put on a good show. And so they believed in him. But he says, well, I don't believe in you. I'm not committing myself to you. So I think it's a good question to ask, do you believe in Jesus? Let's keep asking it. That's a, that's a valid question to ask. But it's not the, the total matter. That's part of the matter. The other question is, I believe in Jesus and he believes in me. Well, how do you know? Because he's changed my life. I have a transformed life. And people can see that difference in your life. So let's be on guard against the easy believism that infiltrated the first century church that Jesus warned against and is, seems to be um, just rolling through the church and through um, many believers' lives. This is the word of the Lord. This is what God says. And that's what we have to deal with. These are the holy scriptures. Not what he says on TikTok or Facebook or Instagram or what some nut job professor wants to write in, in totally un, you know, un, uh, uh, he wants to undermine what the clear teaching of Scripture is. Listen, I don't, that doesn't impress me. When somebody stands up, no matter what degree they have, and they want to say that what Jesus said is not true, they are a false prophet. And so, may we allow God to speak. You know, Jesus, you know, at his baptism, um, the, the Heavenly Father said, this is my beloved Son, who I'm well pleased. <clears throat> and then at the transfiguration, he says, this is my Son. And then what does the Father say? This is my Son. He says, hear him. We need to hear what Jesus has to say. So, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, then you know exactly how to come. You put your belief and trust in him. He will indwell you. He will change you. You submit yourself to that change, and this will be a complete salvation of both faith and works. If you're a believer who's thinking about just living in sin because God will forgive me after all, may you not walk in that deception. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can unpack it the way we do. <coughs> that we have enough scripture, Lord, a complete testimony from you about life and salvation. And we can see that, Lord, you want us to be holy. You want us to be set apart. You want our lives to be marked by obedience to you. Lord, I pray that you will do that work in our heart. And if there is any deception that has entered into our mind, thinking that I can continue in sin and you won't care, I pray, Lord, that you, 
not my voice, but that your spirit would convict with heavy conviction <clears throat> that, Lord, you would be merciful. If that is you, believer, then respond to the Lord. Acknowledge the sinfulness of your sin. Acknowledge that it is not right. Allow yourself to be broken and not deceived by the wolf that wants to come in and say it's all okay. And if you've not given your life to the Lord, pray and ask him to forgive you of your sins. Ask him to enter your heart and to change you. And you'll begin a most amazing journey with the God who loves you and made you. I'll give you a chance to respond. Lord, you are patient. You are loving. You speak the truth. You don't change your mind. We can know what you said before is what you still think and what you still believe. Thank you that you are a God who does not change. Lord, we want to please you. We want to follow you. We, we sing that song that we wanted our life to be um, an offering, a sweet-smelling aroma to you. And Lord, may that happen each and every day as we obey you. Be pleased. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.